Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. WABE in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Kim Droves, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for joining us. In the world of hip-hop, we may think of freestyle rap as somewhat of a battle, but community organizer Alex Cost One Acosta has found a way to use freestyle rap as a space for the equal sharing of ideas. Later this hour, we'll hear how his collective, Soul Food Cipher, invites anyone with a voice and a message to join in and express themselves in freestyle rap gatherings. But first, walk around any in-town neighborhood, look around, and almost like magic, you'll see the mark of Atlanta artist R. Land. There are giant paintings on wood covering the interior walls of some of your favorite coffee shops and bars. His larger-than-life murals adorn the sides of buildings from Decatur to the Fourth Ward to the Highlands and include fantastically wise creatures, like a snail that wants us to remember that life is too important to be in a hurry. His signature style pops in his collaborations with Adult Swim, the Atlanta United, and even Lexus. When he was once commissioned to cover one of their cars in his art live, for Ford Fry's Attack of the Killer Tomato Festival. Some of the artist's images, like Pray for ATL and Lost Cat, have become so woven into Atlanta history that they've kind of taken on lives of their own. Arland is joining me now via Zoom. Hey there, welcome to City Lights. Hey, glad to be here. Well, we're really happy to have you here. Your art is just thread through the fabric of Atlanta, and it hasn't happened overnight. Am I correct that you've been a part of our our city and our art scene for over three decades now? I would say that is safe to say. I moved here about, I think, around 94, 93, 94, but I was I was already engaged in the Atlanta scene since I, I, I think I was coming up as early as 1981. I was sort of a part of the scene since the mid 80s, but I was sniffing around up here back in the early, early 80s and uh, fell in love with Atlanta on the very first visit. Well, Atlanta has certainly fallen in love with you and your style is very distinctive. I was wondering if that has always been your style the shaky line bright colors interesting creatures did you ever veer anywhere else in your path i think for the most part that is sort of the visual vocabulary that i've stuck with it has just happened like that it wasn't 
something that I developed consciously. It was just the only way I knew how to achieve whatever I was trying to say in a visual manner. So it was the language from the get-go. And it just, uh, I guess it's evolved to some extent, but pretty much looks the same as, as how it did 40 years ago. When you started creating art, what drew you to the medium? Were you an impulsive doodler in school or was it something that you consciously picked up with intention at one point? I don't think that I ever really thought about it. I think that, I think the one thing that is consistent throughout the course of time so far is a sensibility rather than just the line or, you know, just the style. Because a lot of things that have been a part of what I express out there in the world may not look as much like my drawing, but sometimes the drawing is the thing that achieves whatever it is I need to say. But like the lost cat thing, for example, that flyer really has little to do with the standard drawing style, but some people can totally see the connection and some people would never think that it was me. Um, And I get that a lot where people just all of a sudden realize, oh, I never knew that was yours, that kind of thing. To your question, I don't know that there was ever a moment where I thought, this is what I'm going to do. I think it was more about just whatever it took to achieve whatever thing I was trying to say or put out there into the world. And sometimes it's just the drawing style. And since I'm not a very good artist, in my own opinion, I think that it's just the best way that I can make whatever I want to make happen, happen. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It does, but agree to disagree on the very good artist part. That's uh, <laughs> that's not the general consensus, but we'll move along. Since you mentioned Lost Cat, for those in our audience that aren't familiar, will you describe that flyer a little bit for us and the words that accompany it as well? <laughs> well, you know, it's a uh, it's been around now. I think this is the 20, 20th anniversary of its so-called debut in the world. <laughs> I was working on a bunch of projects one night, and this is back in the days before you could do everything on your laptop. I would go to Kinko's, and sometimes that would be two or three in the morning because they were open 24-7. And one night I had two or three jobs I was trying to uh, perfect and get ready for deadline. But while things were printing at Kinko's, I was just looking through my file folder because I just had a bunch of stuff, you know, in this big notebook. God, this sounds so old and antiquated. <laughs> but I had a, I had like a large folder full of just junk that if the mood hit me, I would make something happen with it. So I had this old picture of this cat that I found somewhere. And while I was waiting for this print job, I was just screwing around with the copy machine and I made a copy of the cat. And then I just scribbled, you know, some words on top and below and wasn't thinking much about what I was saying. But when I finished it, I just started making copies and it made me laugh. So I think that's kind of one of those things that is really important to me. If something makes me laugh, that's the best way to measure whether it's something that's of any value to me. It made me laugh pretty hard. This is long before the days of, you know, viral memes. And I went to breakfast the next morning. Oh, I forgot the most important part. That night after I left Kinko's, I went back to the studio and then took the copies and pasted them around town. (laughs) Um, And then went to bed, got up the next morning, went to breakfast at Thumbs Up 
which was a pretty hot breakfast place in 2001. And uh, there's a line kind of around the block, but lost cats are kind of everywhere. And uh, I didn't think it was going to be any big deal. I just, it was just something that I wanted to see. I just wanted to do it. I mean, it just hit me that night and I did it. And um, people were in front of me and back of me talking about the cat. Yeah, <laughs> they were looking at it. And it was so funny. I don't know. It just sort it has never stopped. It's, it just keeps on giving. It's a wonderful part of um, my life now. And it's, <laughs> I'd never imagined that it would be a thing that would last more than a week. But yeah, uh, and here it is two decades later. Yeah. For people who haven't seen it, can you tell us the words that are on that poster? Um, I don't know that I have it memorized, but you know, it's a, it's misspelled a, a lot of uh, malaprops or whatever you want to call it that are on there where it's like lost cat instead of L-O-S-T it's L-O-S-S. And then it talks about, um, don't you have it memorized, Kim? <laughs> Pretty sure the cat needs some shots and that yeah. it foams. Yep. That's right. No, um, here I have one. It just says speckles below the photograph says speckles do not call when come limps, dirty, not tag. Reward, needsman, period, foam. And then it says call ward. And then there's a phone number on there that was, I, I just made up. And then for a long time, when I would call that number, there was nobody on the other end. It was just like a call that was not in service. But subsequently, years and years later, long after Lost Cat had many lives and somebody got that number, and Lost Cat oh, at that no. point had traveled the world. It had been in books and television shows and movies and in bars around the country in LA, New York, everywhere. People would see that number on the flyer and would call it in the middle of the night. So I started hearing of these complaints from this person who had the number and I felt bad for her, but I don't know what to do at this point because it's already, it was long established before she had the number and people would call her in the middle of the night, prank call her, ask questions about lost cat and this and that. So there's so many stories that break off of this one piece of work. I could put together a book of just the adventures that come from this one flyer. I don't know if it's anything special now, but back then it felt special and it still feels special. But, but you know what I'm saying? There's so many things that travel like that now through the internet that when this thing started, it wasn't the same. It was, it was remarkable when something would sort of build a life just from being on the street. Now you can yeah. put something on the internet in one minute and it can be a thing in two hours. I think of you as the father of a viral video. Like you were doing things that are getting the same reactions as what people do now when they share a video well before social media was even a thing. Yeah, I guess so. I would be hard pressed to find many Atlantans that haven't run into one of those flyers at some point in their life. There's been a couple of other things that you've done through the course of your artistic times that don't completely fall into the box of your classic paintings and drawings. Another one that I had seen around town once upon a time were signs for advertising yuppie condos. Mm -hmm. Was that an Arland project as well? It was. That was... Around the same time, about 2001, it was when you first started getting a sense that Atlanta was starting to change. And I, I had already had a couple of stints in New York, but 
increasingly Atlanta felt like the center of the universe, or at least, you know, at least everything was decentralized. So you could make stuff happen just about anywhere you wanted to make happen by 2001. And certainly that's true more so now than ever. But back then you already got a good sense of that. And Atlanta was coming into its own at that point. Meanwhile, there's this thing happening where in the few places here and there where um, developers can find a way, they tear down old properties or find plots of land that aren't developed and they throw up these apartment buildings or condos or lofts or whatever. And it was just like, what is happening here? This is terrible. It didn't feel right. I mean, obviously it's commonplace now, but back then it was really weird because I felt like Atlanta was so soulful. And all of a sudden here are all these new constructions that were not great. Anyway, I, I just decided that there's not much you can do about that, but I started, started putting these signs up, just sort of making fun of those. It looked like just any other sign that was out and about on the streets of Atlanta, advertising, coming soon, available new lofts and condos kind of thing. Are you going to ask me what they say? Because I don't have one of those in front of me either. But it basically, it's just sort of, I think it even <laughs> says Yuppie Ghetto. It looks very legit, like uh, just an official Corplast sign on every corner telling you that there are uh, Yuppie Ghetto lofts and condos coming soon. Those sort of caught fire too. It was like they just, I think it spoke to a lot of people that were on the same page that I was on about like what was happening. Yep. Now those those lofts and condos and those kind of places house tens of thousands of people within a five mile radius of the city that I love and can't disparage them too much because I guess they, they offer a place for people to live and be a part of the community. And there's a lot of wonderful folks. As a matter of fact, at one point I did a run of those for sale because so many people ask me all the time, remember those yuppie ghetto signs you used to do? Can I buy one of those? So I did like a, a run and people, I would get these emails and messages from people that say either they bought one because they live in one, you know, they bought a sign because they moved into one and that was their first place, or they would steal them off of the streets, you know, get up on a ladder or on top of their car or on top of their boyfriend's shoulders and steal one and hang it in their yuppie ghetto. So um, <laughs> that was that was a really strange aspect of that was like people know what, that they live in one, but they, so they want the sign. It's very meta. Hanging in it. Uh, I don't know. I, that's the kind of stuff I live for. I love that, that something that I express means something to them too. So it's like a connector. It's like I connect with you, even though you live in the very kind of place that I would want to avoid living in. I mean, this is before housing became so unaffordable in the city. This is back when you still get a Cabbage Town house for $60,000. So why would you get uh, a yuppie ghetto condo for one twenty? I don't know. You very much tapped into the way that many in town people felt at that time 20 years ago when those condos and apartments started popping up everywhere. It did feel a little bit like an invasion upon a city that we were very used to the landscape of. And and as you mentioned, it is now very much the norm. And there are some beautiful Atlantans that take home in these places. And some of them do offer a little more affordable housing than a regular house because our prices here have gone so crazy. Yeah. But if anybody was familiar with the way that Atlanta looked back in the 90s or early 2000s. It or did felt. dramatic, yeah, or felt it dramatically changed our city. 
Yeah. So those signs spoke to a lot of people. And there's one other thing I wanted to chat with you about that I would lump into this category of you being a bit of a prankster, aside from an artist. Is it true that once upon a time, you bought a bunch of dead iPhones and glued them to countertops around town? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) That is the first time I've even thought about that. You mentioning that brings that. I think I did that when iPhones first became, you know, now it's super commonplace for people to be on their phone everywhere. And um, back in the days when mobile phones were really starting to, I remember being ashamed to be on my phone when I was in a vehicle or out in public. I don't want to be on the phone when people are around. I don't, I think it's more of like, Oh, I'll do this when I'm not engaged with society, you know, in my own personal space. Um, But then as things got to where people are walking around looking down on their phones, I think I bought a bunch of dummy phones, the ones that basically have all the housing of the device, but without the guts um and they were i don't know 20 bucks a piece or something like that i bought a bunch of them and i just would glue them to things that seemed relatively permanent um in places where there's a lot of human activity and it was funny to see people of all different types walk up to it when there's nobody around and try to pick it up and it's just stuck i don't know i don't even know if that's really funny but it just amused me and it at least was amusing to people that I was with when they would see it. And I would never claim that it was me that did it. I wouldn't even be like, look, that person's about to pick up my phone. It's not like that at all. I'd just like, oh my God, somebody found a phone, but they can't pick it up. I'm not trying to claim responsibility for it. But, you know, just, it was just a funny moment. And I can't believe that you remember that. I think it speaks well to your sense of humor and just this fly on the wall mentality that you have and enjoying the humanity of it all. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think I'm not trying to make fun of people or anything. But, you know, if I walked by a fake phone, not knowing it was a fake phone or just a phone on the ground or on a countertop, I would probably try to pick it up too. I wasn't as enamored by the mobile device as everybody else seemed to be at the time. I'm not a Luddite or somebody that hates technology, but uh, sometimes I am a little disappointed that it seems to be more important than the actual raw experience of life, but that's just how it's going to go. That's our, that's our evolution. And then that's, it's just how it's going. The fact that that's even something we're talking about is tripping me out a little bit. <laughs> Atlanta's one and only our land. We're discussing his three decade long love affair with our city. And coming up, we'll hear the origin story behind land's pray for ATL signs. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. 
At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Welcome back to City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Let's return to my conversation with R. Land. His work has been featured prominently in our city for over 30 years. And here, Land discusses the origins behind his Pray for ATL signs. I started doing the Pray for ATL thing. <laughs> it's not so unlike anything in that same period where sort of like the loft signs, it was one of those moments where pretty much in love with Atlanta because of the community that we have and the types of people that are here and such a you know vast array of just a diverse city that seems so with it in so many ways. And I really felt the community so strong. I still, I still feel it very strongly, but basically I'm just saying that I understood what Atlanta was. I was in love with it. And then I saw outside forces trying to cash in on that and make it some crap that I didn't like. So I started putting those wheat paste pray for ATLs up with no intention to do anything with it, but just be like this desperate, like, oh my God, pray for the city kind of thing. It was coming from the heart. It wasn't like there was anything tongue in cheek about it. And I wasn't necessarily coming from a, some sort of altruistic religious standpoint. It was just like, whatever that means to you, this place needs prayer right now, because I can see it turning a, an awful corner. So I put them up around town and sort of like the lost cat thing, it instantly resonated in a way that I didn't expect. And then quickly became a thing other than just a street expression because people were asking if they could get that in any form. So I started doing like these massive silk screen runs of just the image on wood and paper and just about everything else. And so over the years, it's become something far more than just like what I think its original intent was and has definitely become more of an identifier for the city. And I wouldn't say that just in my own opinion. It's just like I, I even had a dude one time tell me who lives in another city say that this was like 10 years ago or more. He's like, wow, that pray for ATL thing you do in Atlanta has sort of become like the I heart New York of mm -hmm of the South. But that was like the highest piece of flattery that I had ever received. It's a really yeah. good comparison. I mean, I don't know if that's true, but I'm just saying that I, I like it so much because it can be a straightforward message, but it's beyond that. It transcends what my intentions were, like I said, but also that I think when I moved away from North Florida back in the early nineties, I really wanted to escape the um, the religiosity of a city that's just consumed with churchiness. It's not that I'm against people being spiritual or or having a relationship with God or whatever. It's just that I needed to get away from it. And I found um, refuge in Atlanta and it being a more enlightened place where maybe you do have people that believe in God or read the Bible or whatever, but also plenty of friends that were agnostics and atheists that I could commiserate with and talk about all things existential. What I'm trying to get at is that over time now with Pray for ATL, it's like actual people of faith have come out of the woodwork to connect with me. And it's not like that's just all that it is, but it means something different to everybody. And then maybe on some level, there's a connecting point with everyone about just the general feel of the thing. 
So I love that about it. No doubt. And over the pandemic took on a couple of different lives as well with mask for ATL and then vax for ATL. Were either of those or both of those partnerships with charities? Yeah, the wash for ATL in particular, you know, I've spoofed that that image so many times in so many different ways and sort of given license to other entities to play with it over the years. But the moment that the pandemic was really becoming a thing in everybody's consciousness, I just did that sort of iteration of it as wash for ATL. I think I just did it as a PSA on Instagram one day and it sort of caught fire and uh, got a lot of emails, DMs and the like. And the best one was the head or one of the main guys at uh, United Way contacted me that evening and said, hey, I would love to do something in conjunction with your new Wash for ATL art and maybe start a campaign to um, raise money for people who are affected by this, you know, especially people that don't have access to a lot of the things that other people do. So that campaign, instead of it just being an expression that I put out there in the world as a PSA, it became quickly a fundraising campaign that lasted a great eight or nine months where we raised so much money for United Way, but it was fantastic. What a Um, lovely way to be able to give back. For sure. So a couple of other pieces of yours that people think of, there's Little Bunny Foo-Foo, there's your Georgia Musicland pictures, there's one of my personal favorites, Kitten of the Sea. Where do you get your inspiration for some of these creatures that you come up with? I don't know that there's any special place where it comes from. I just have hundreds of sketch pads and doodle sheets. Everything sort of starts with just a rough drawing on a little piece of paper and then all of a sudden you look at it one day and go, I love the way this thing looks. I want to try to be as true to this original just quick sketch as I can. In the case of like the one you're talking about, I think there was a little tiny, tiny doodle and I just blew it up on the copy machine and tried to make it a more complete drawing. Sometimes just the sketch itself seems to be sufficient though, but in that case, I think I cleaned it up a little bit and made it a little thicker, but um, just want it to be something that that is right in the now, but if it comes from the right place, sometimes it lasts beyond the moment, for lack of a mm. better, better way to explain it. Is there anything else about your process that you could share from when it goes from a sketch on paper to a classic Arland woodwork? Again, it's just like sort of not subconscious, but a lot of times when I draw, I'm not really thinking about what I'm doing. I'm just doing it and not thinking like I'm going to draw a house and a bear or whatever. I just (laughs) am doodling in it and just sort of happens without me thinking too much. And then I go back and look at it. Like, I really like that. I would love to see that out there in the world. I would like to give it more of a life. So then I'll take the sketch, blow it up, fine tune it or not. Um, Probably uh, give it some color and maybe a little more solid line work. And that's kind of how it starts. We have so many aspiring and younger artists in our city now, which is a beautiful thing, but it's very hard to get people to notice your work. Mm -hmm. Do you have any advice for younger artists who are coming of age nowadays? I think that it's the landscape is so different than when I started, for sure. I think that I probably for the first 10 years of me doing what I do, I wasn't sure if I was even connecting because it seems like, at least in the old school days, the more 
popular or commercially successful you became, the more people, especially artists and creative types would look down on you. Like, why are you so, why are you selling out or whatever? Which, you know, by the eighties had already, you know, Andy Warhol, there are a lot of people that were already doing things that were bridging the gap from the sacred white walls of the gallery to just being blatantly commercial or trying to reach a, a wide audience. But I've never had a problem with that. And I think, like I said, the landscape has changed in every major city where nobody's ashamed to reach out beyond the gallery to find an audience. And it looks to me like most younger artists now, like the, the young bucks that are doing all the, the murals and, <clears throat> and the alternative galleries and, and the like, aren't having a problem finding a way to, be, to find exposure. There's so many ways. And, and I'm just referencing back to my early days here where I sort of stood out like a sore thumb because I, it felt like what my work was looked so different than everything else to the extent where I wasn't completely secure about whether I was doing the right thing, but I couldn't help it. That's just who I was. And now there are so many young kids now that are doing things that are in the same ballpark and it's a no brainer. So it's so drastically different than even 20 or 30 years ago that it's hard for me to, to say what might be a good tip because <laughs> they right. might have a better idea than me at this point. Um, <laughs> right. But I just know that the, the path that I had, there was no path. I just, I made it up as I went along. There was not path, but you know, like a roadmap. So like I had to carve my own thing without any idea that I was doing it right. And for the most part, avoided galleries just sort of through my own pop-up shows throughout the 80s and 90s. And uh, even to this day, when I do a show, of new work. I just put it together myself. I never waited for someone to ask me because not many people were back in the old days. And it got to be such second nature to not expect that, that even when people do ask you, it, it doesn't sound good anymore. It's like, why? I've already done all this stuff without it. Why would I want somebody to host me now? And so I think that a lot of young people and younger artists now are on that same tip. And if they're not, they're at least doing group shows, which are always super fun, where you contribute two or three works and be a part of something. And of course, I think collaborating with people that you admire and or people that might have a little bit more of a career than you have yet is a good idea. All that stuff is healthy for Atlanta's culture. Right. So we talked about a couple of things that you've done that you're like, I don't necessarily want credit for that as far as the iPhones go and some other of the prankster stuff that you never really signed your name to. But there was a series of paintings that looked like your work, but were signed by a different artist by the name of Royce Riley. Was that your work? Yeah, that came at a time where I was pretty busy and would get asked to do like, I think Righteous Room was one of the places and which is a very well-known popular dive on Ponce Avenue next to the plaza. Um, they asked me if I'd want to hang work. So at that point, I was doing a lot of prints and reproductions of established work. So I didn't have a lot of time to contribute just my normal stuff to a full wall in a bar, restaurant, gallery, or whatever. So I would offer up this friend of mine or an artist, which was tongue-in-cheek just even saying it because they knew it was going to be me. But I would just do these really sloppy they do look like my work, but they're sloppier and uh, didn't take a lot of time with any of them. They're basically like giant color sketches 
that were really loose. But what was good about them was I would just come up with stuff off the cuff late at night when I had sort of finished the business of the day, whatever that might be. I'd be like, okay, so I've got to fill this place in like two days with seven paintings. And then I just would find the surfaces to do that on, whether they be canvas or wood. And I would just come up with stuff on the fly. Maybe that also would start with a sketch, but instead of perfecting the sketch, I would just blow it up and draw it on the canvas and then colorize it. And it would be simple little expressions. A lot of them did involve words. And then I would go fill the space and I would price them cheaply because it, in my mind, didn't take much time. I mean, there was some inspiration behind it, but it was stuff that I would never do with my true editing brain. This is stuff I will let go because I'm not signing my name to it. It's sort of like the uh, silence do good with the Benjamin Franklin thing where he had pseudonyms. And, right. and so I decided that I would give this whole strain of what I do to this one guy and just call him Royce Riley. It's almost like he was a folk artist or something. Mm-hmm. And um, I did not expect that I would sell them constantly. So, you know, for 250 or $300, you could get a giant painting, sloppy painting with a cute little saying or, or witticism on it. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, I think in the course of a year, I probably sold like 170 of those paintings just in one place. Eventually all of that stuff, when I sort of stopped doing that, just worked into my own repertoire. Like I claimed it all back, fixed it up a little bit and made it my own. I think a lot of things that are commonplace in my catalog now came from that period because it was cathartic on some level. It was just like me giving myself permission to do something that seemed not so great or just like a B or C roll kind of expression. Then once I zhuzhed it up a little bit, it became, oh, wow, that's one of my favorite things. Like the snail that's on the side of folk art restaurant there in the middle of Highland Avenue. That was originally a Royce Riley or a a bloom where you're planted or um, please be patient. God isn't finished with me yet. So anyway, yeah, that period was really cool and uh, brought about lots of new things and a new attitude about how to do that type of thing where I have character-related messages that are brightly colored and are in the form of a painting or a a print. Yeah, they came from that. There's so many things I love about that story, just giving yourself permission to take the perfectionist out of your brain for a minute, Yeah, create and just be done with it. Yeah, I mean, to actually do a big painting not worry about one part of how it turns out that it's just going to be good no matter what, because it's so silly and even verging on ridiculous. Like I would never allow this to happen in my own production, but since it's not me really, it's fine. And it's actually funnier somehow. And then over time, you're like, wait a minute, I want that for my own now, you know, and sort of just eliminate the guy that was doing it originally, which was the freer brain, the the one that was more like not concerned about how it turns out. And now it's under my control again. It's amazing how much you can create when you give your brain a little bit of a break, how yeah, much I mean, you really, can actually throw out there. When I sit here and talk about it, I'm like, why isn't, I mean, this is the way it should go a lot of the time is like, just create an alter ego and produce something that's completely not even something that you claim and oh man, it just gives you so much room to just have fun. I'm glad that you brought up, it was really important to me and it makes me kind of question why I don't do more of that kind of thing, if that makes it's sense. It's a good thing to keep in touch with mentally. I think you're right. That's it. That's it. You just need to stay in touch. 
you know, they always say you need to stay in touch with your beginnings. Well, also stay in touch with these stages in your life as a human being that you may or may not find to be important, but maybe they're more important than you than you think they are. Iconic Atlanta artist R. Land. You can learn more about Land and his work on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. In a moment, we'll hear about Soul Food Cipher, Alex Cost One Acosta's Freestyle Rap Collective. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. In the world of hip-hop, we often think of freestyle rap as somewhat of a battle, but community organizer Alex Acosta, or Cost One, wants us to use freestyle rap as a space for the equal sharing of ideas. One term for collaborative freestyle rap is cipher, another word for circle. His collective, Soul Food Cipher, invites anyone with a voice and a message to join in and express themselves in freestyle rap gatherings. He's also the owner of Rapport, an agency connecting communities with the art of the cipher. The freestyle artist recently joined City Lights host Lois Reitzes, and here, Acosta begins their conversation by sharing the story behind his name, Cost One. Sure. So my name is actually an acronym, and it stands for Continuing Our Spiritual Traditions. It also stands for Continuing Our Sound Traditions, and it also stands for Continuing Oral Storytelling. So my name is a part of what I do, and what I do is a part of my name. Cool. So it's not a nickname. It's a chosen name. It is. So in hip-hop, you choose a name. And I chose a name that was similar even to my last name. Yeah. In hip hop, you have four different elements. And to really say that you are part of the culture, you participate in all different types of the elements. And one of the elements is graffiti writing. And early on, when I was in high school, early college, I was heavily into the writing tradition and learning how to write and express Mm -hmm. myself. And I chose the name Cost. And that eventually led over to my work with MCs. And in that, I found a new definition for my name. It's not necessarily just paying the price, but it's also to continue our spiritual tradition. So this stems from all of my work within hip hop, and it also serves as my mission as well. Cypher might be a new term in this context for some of our listeners. Would you define it? Sure. A cypher is a circle in which an art takes place. If you've ever seen people break dancing, taking turns, jumping in one by one, they're performing in a breakdancing cypher. If you've ever seen drummers get together in a drum circle, they're in a drum cypher. In freestyle rap, when we gather around, we call that a cypher. And usually cyphers are ephemeral. They come and they dissipate. But within the cypher, there's a lot of power. So with Soul Food Cypher, what we did was we were able to create a continuing cipher, a cipher in which people knew that was happening and can come participate. And with that, we really defined and redefined the cipher as a microcosm of our community. It's a place where anybody within the community, outside of the community can come. And in that circle, we share 
the same access to be able to, to share our message. We share the same ability to be able to connect with one another. In the cipher, it's a, it's a truly democratic space. It's a space in which everybody has the ability to be able to hear others, but then also listen as well. So the cipher, it seems like a showcase, but it's much deeper than that. A cipher truly is a microcosm of our community. Spontaneity is an important part, an essential part of freestyle, and ciphers are often spontaneous. Alex, what made you decide to start organizing these moments with intention? In 2011, I began mentoring at the Whiteford Intel Computer Clubhouse in the Edgewood neighborhood in East Atlanta. And at that time, specifically, it was a neighborhood on transition. And while I was at Whiteford, this community center, I began working with kids and I was teaching them photography. My background is photojournalism. But the real way I was able to connect with the kids wasn't through photography. The real way I was able to connect with them was through our shared appreciation and love for hip hop culture. In the center, they had a studio and the kids would record music. But the true magic happened right outside of the studio where the kids would get together and start to cipher. And this reminded me of when I was growing up because we used to cipher when I was in high school. And it also just reminded me of the ability to use freestyle to heal as well, because these kids were going through some real things. They were dealing with abandonment issues. They were dealing with violence. They were dealing with so many ills that kids deal with today, but in their rhymes, they would address it, but then they will also address solutions or what they felt were solutions to, to the issues as well. And also that there was a power with that. And at the same time that I was freestyling with these youth, I was also having ciphers with some of my friends who were young professionals. We were in our uh, mid-20s at the time. And I thought, why not create a safe and nurturing environment in which the art form could be elevated, in which the art form could continue? So I decided to write a proposal to a community art center called Wonderroot at the time. And they allowed us to use their basement. And in that basement, so much magic happened. And I think it's very important to really specify what freestyle rap truly is. And what freestyle rap is, is the greatest display of faith. To know that the next word that you're going to say is going to rhyme with the previous verse. And to be able to do that rhythmatically on beat takes a lot of faith just to have that faith within yourself. And sometimes you don't know what you're going to say, but you know that it's going to make sense. So the cipher is truly a deeply spiritual place, but it's also a place of healing. It's also a place of education. The cipher is an amazing place in which intergenerationally and across different artificial barriers that we have, we can be able to connect with people. We've had people of all different nationalities come to the cipher. We've had people of all ages, all genders come to the cipher and it's a safe space. And honestly, I argue it's one of the rare places in which people can connect authentically and from a place of love and genuine appreciation for one another. It's interesting to hear you explain this because freestyle is often thought of in the context of battle, like a rap battle. And what you're saying takes confrontation out of the equation. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
It has to. I think about history. We were taken from Africa, but not only that, it was because we were warring with one another. We were warring with different tribes. The Yoruba were warring with Congo. And because of those conflicts and the division, we were brought over to this country. And that battling, you know, continues in neighborhoods, even to this day, when we talk about gang violence, we don't need <laughs> any more battles. We don't, you know, to say I'm better than you because of this, this and that. We're not in a space where we need that. And yes, I, I do believe that there is friendly competition, but the type of battles that lead to deaths, that lead to intergenerational conflicts, that is not what we're supporting. What we want to be able to do is use our music for healing. We want to be able to use our words to uplift one another. And one of my favorite exercises or segments that we do in the cipher is nice bars. And with nice bars, we actually reverse battle rap. So we have two MCs come together and those MCs, instead of tearing each other down, they look at one another and they say complimentary things to one another. They talk about how great each other are. They talk about their style, but there may be some things that the crowd doesn't know. Maybe someone loaned someone money or maybe somebody did something that they didn't know. So we're actually creating an air of positivity and that positivity then has momentum throughout their lives and everyone else's lives. And that's what we stand for. Since Soul Food Cypher's events took off, new characters entered the picture and became a part of the team, like Atlanta rapper and DJ Zeno Bathroom. Would you tell me more about him and some of your other close collaborators? Absolutely, absolutely, ma'am. What isn't there to say about Zeno? <laughs> you know, a lot of times in hip hop, we have this thing called the top five. And the top five is who's your favorite MC, dead or alive? And Zeno's never heard me say this before, but I will put Zeno in my top five, even though he doesn't have a nationally recognized record or anything of that sort. But Zeno is a man, a myth, and a legend. Zeno was the missing piece to what we needed with Soul Food Cypher. So I had a vision for a cypher, and particularly a cypher in the basement at that time of Wonder Root. And I, through my journey, I met other collaborators who would come to become co-founders of Soul Food Cypher, the organization. Uh, one of those was one of my best friends, Wahid Kashavani. He also goes by Source One. Him and I actually met in high school in the Cypher. Actually, it was a battle rap where him and I battled, but then we became good friends. Also, Mallorca Akerjam, Murphy, she was also a friend of mine I had met in a Cypher while I was in college. And then I was also introduced to Mark Mott, who's a brilliant graphic designer who helped us create our brand identity. And we had been doing ciphers for about four months or so, but then we get this email from this individual named Eric Ludgood saying, hey, I'm going to start a cipher, no hard feelings. Just wanted to let, let you guys know. And we were just beginning and we were struggling to bring a lot of people in. And something just told me, why not invite this guy? So we invited Zeno to the cypher. And when he began to rap, all of our jaws dropped. He was able to bring in metaphors and allusions to pop culture, to comic book culture, to all of these things. And he was just like a living and breathing oracle. And he was exactly what we were missing, that talent level. 
And that's also what helped us attract other amazing MCs that have come into our ciphers today. Alex, how did Soul Food Cipher lead to the formation of Rapport? What is Rapport? Rapport is a production company that preserves and elevates freestyle rap and lyricism. And we do this through performances and also multimedia projects. And the mission of Rapport is rap different. So the way that Soul Food Cipher led to Rapport is that through Soul Food Cipher for the past 10 years, and I can't believe that we're on a decade of Soul Food Cipher, Soul Food Cipher has had the opportunity to do amazing things throughout the country. But even at that, Soul Food Cipher at its best is a destination. It's a place in which MCs see the beacon and they can come to. I like to imagine Soul Food Cipher as the blue note of Atlanta hip hop and a place that if you're serious about hip hop, if you're serious about rap, you come improve yourself in the cipher. This is where MCs earn their chops. But at its best, Soul Food Cipher is a destination. But in this, I've had a lot of opportunities to take the cipher places as well. And with Soul Food Cipher being a nonprofit, it will continue to be a destination. But as I activate and elevate freestyle rap and lyricism, I do this under rapport. And that's because rapport is really a play on name. To me, rappers are some of the most ingenious individuals. And it's important that rappers have good rapport with communities and communities have good rapport because rap music has connected me with people I wouldn't have been able to connect with because of artificial barriers. So rap is a port that connects people. And rappers are brilliant problem solvers. They not only connect words and ideas and rhyme, but also move people to action. So rap is a port that connects problems to solutions. And as I stated before, rap is an amazing form and display of faith. So freestyle rap and ciphers connect to a longer history and traditions that have survived the slave trade. And rap is a port to reconnect the diaspora. So rapport is a rap port that connects MCs to opportunities and connects MCs to new communities. And we want to be able to display rap different. One related project is Word Shop, the after-school program at the Kindesi School in Atlanta, started by Soul Food Cipher. How did that program come about? I had a chance meeting with Devin Hagos at the Kendesi School. We were introduced via the Arthur M. Blank Foundation. And they had a special after-school program called Specials. And we're looking for artists to work with. And Soul Food Cipher had already been doing some workshops. And we had been working with Boys and Girls Club. And we had been working on one-off opportunities. But the opportunity presented itself for us to be able to collaborate on a program. And we decided to name that program Workshop. And in that program, we wanted to be able to utilize MCs in their best form as griots, which are storytellers. And the outcomes of that was to help kids develop a love 
an appreciation for the written word and the spoken word. And by doing so, that would increase their vocabulary. That would increase their public speaking skills, all in a culturally relevant way. And we had worked with Kandesi for three years, and we had eventually grown to doing our workshop programming on all three campuses, three times a week at the Kandesi School. Unfortunately, with the pandemic, we've had to step back from that. But at some point, we look forward to continuing our workshop programming. How can listeners find Soul Food Cipher events in Atlanta? By visiting our website, soulfoodcipher.com. We're also on Instagram and also Facebook. You can follow us at Soul Food Cipher, S-O-U-L-F-O-O-D-C-Y-P-H-E-R. Alex Cost One Acosta. More information about Soul Food Cipher and Acosta's other projects can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., actors Sean Hudock and January Lavoie tell us about Knock at the Gates' all-audio immersive production of Macbeth. The drama is designed to be streamed at home through headphones in a really dark room. City Lights' executive producer and host is Lois Reitzis. Summer Evans is our producer, and Shelly Canavy is our engineer. I'm senior producer Kim Drobes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights, or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram, where we are at City Lights underscore L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.